0: This text is from Mark eight thirty-four through 37. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever, will lo- whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is God's word. Uh, Good morning, church. Happy New Year. It's good to be with you all. Um, Today we begin our um, annual vision series. And today, this morning, I'd like to talk about a vision for your life vision for your life, Um, but a caveat, I have so much to share, like a lot of notes, so um, I'm just going to ask that you be just like patient, attentive, all the stuff that uh, you already are, you already are these things, do them now, Um, (laughs) your kids are well taken care of, but I I have a lot to share about about today's topic, so um, please bear with me. Um, Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Um, We thank you for the life that you call us into. And I pray today that you would dispel any misconceptions around the life that you call us into. I pray for people that are new to uh, the church or new to to the teachings of Jesus or or maybe they have these preconceived ideas of what it is after being in Sunday school for a very long time at a different place or whatever. And today you would just, just show us the, the real Jesus and that's what we pray in your way. Um, I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> there is um, art in the world that is so moving and so good that it makes you think about your funeral. And what I mean by that is that a piece of art makes you think about your mortality, like your own mortality. A song song for me does that, like a a song, actually a few songs, but this particular song does that for me. It's uh, a song by Frank Ocean, it's called Pink and White. And if you've never heard this song, like really listened to it with headphones on, interrupted, you're welcome. You're very, very, very welcome. It's my New Year's gift to you. Now this song is nostalgic. It evokes my childhood, even though I didn't listen to this song in my childhood. It's also, um, it, it evokes a moment when I first fell in love with this song, which is like about four years ago, when um, Ashley and I were on a, a baby moon, like, as, as people do these days, and we were in Mendocino, on the cliffs in Mendocino, if you've ever been there, and the sun was setting, and like it is in December, it was December when we were on our baby moon, um, the, the sky just turns pink and white in the, su- in the, in the winter around here. It's beautiful. And I just grabbed my, I turned the song on, because I'm like, oh, this song, this, my, this moment reminds me of this song. So I put it on, and we were just like vibing, just out in the cliffs, like, I can't believe my life. Like, we're finally going to be able to have a baby. We're out here. We're like, we've been together uh, for so long. Uh, we, we just celebrated 28 years dating, like this last week. So it's like forever, forever, right? So it doesn't feel like forever. It feels like a day. But it was like, it was that feeling, like this is some... The emo- song was like capturing all of that, okay? So, um, and I don't know if it's like the, if it's like the subtle lyrics in the song or the, like the resonant bass or Frank Ocean's like soulful voice or uh, Beyonce singing in the background, it's probably Beyonce singing in the background of the song, but I can't help but think about my death. When I he- hear this song, I can't, but not in a morbid way, in a way where it reminds me that I'm alive. Now, there are other songs and other pieces of art that do this, too. Maybe you have a piece of art that does that to you. If not, you're free to use pink and white. Now, on Wednesday, I walked into sight and was uh, speaking into my phone because um, I'm, I was trying to, I was rambling to myself on, like, the voice notes about how to get to the center of this teaching, like, we're starting a new vision series. I want to set our trajectory for our year and beyond. And I had so many things I wanted to say, but I was, what I was really trying to do was trying to find the center of the teaching. I was trying to find the existential urgency of the teaching. So I'm rambling, trying to find it, trying to find it, trying to find it. And I walked into Sightglass, and this song was on. And of course it was on vinyl because that's what they do there. And the song was on and I walked in, I was like, wait, what? Whoa, whoa. And I was just like in the I was just in it, immediately in it, to where I was just like, I forgot that I was in line. I'm like, next sir, what do you would you like to drink? I'm like, oh, and so I after, even after I get my drink, I'm standing in the middle of the store listening to the rest of the song just like completely in the song. I would probably look so silly, just in the middle of the, hold my cup of coffee, just like swaying and like mouthing the words of the song. And I was just in it, and I was, I was listening to this whole song. All these feelings started hitting me again. Feelings of being alive, of knowing that one day, I, one day I will die, all leaving me thinking, what is like this all about? What is this life all about? And there it was for me. Existential urgency, my own existential angst, my own existential urgency. See, humanity is pretty unique to feel this way, to think this way, to have existential burden. Now, for those that maybe don't know, existentialism is is the philosophical idea of meaning and purpose that we humans know that we have one life, and thus we feel responsibility. Some of us feel it as a burden to find meaning in this life, we are creature, creatures that long desire and search for meaning, for our life, for the universe to mean something. Existentialism, basically the, we exist and therefore we have to find meaning. And in that way we're unique. Our family has, um, currently has a, a, a pet snail. And um, I won't give you a picture of this snail because that's gross, but his name is Carl. And it's not after Carl the Fog, it's after his, his full name is Crawler, Crawler, Eater, Eater. Juniper named our, uh, this, this one, so we call him Carl for short. Um, and he showed up in our lives via lettuce from the farmer's market not too long ago. Now here's the thing, Ashley, my wife, hates snails. There's a traumatic event that happened as a girl with like squishing a snail between bare feet that, you know, has her, every time she hears the word snail, she just squirms. So I hear this murderous scream come from the kitchen. So I run in there a few weeks ago and Ash discovers it's like little snail on lettuce. And I, and I just say, let's keep it. Like the kids would love this thing. So I grab Tupperware, I go outside, I get soil and I bring it back upstairs and I put him in there and all this other stuff. And now fast forward a few weeks and Ashley has fully adopted this snail. <laughs> she went on Amazon, bought him a proper home. He lives on the kitchen counter. Ash sends me pictures of him like she does our kids and our dog. She has gone so far as to try to discover his particular gastronomic preferences like he loves kale and he does not like collard greens, that sort of thing. But here's the thing about Carl. Carl doesn't have a sense of mortality. Carl doesn't know that his life will end one day. He doesn't sit up at night in the kitchen like, what is this all about? He doesn't do that. But I do. Ashley does. Actually, we, Ashley and I have a fight. Because we know Carl's lifespan is short, we actually argue about what's best for Carl. (laughs) We have existential, existential angst for Carl. I think that he should live outside in the backyard because the backyard is beautiful and lush and there's plants and there's dew and rain and all this stuff and there's rocks and it's really cool. And Ashley thinks that he should live on her counter because she feeds him fresh kale every morning. Like, what's better than this? He lives in a hotel room every single day. And I clean up after him and I feed him food. And so we have this argument, no, he's, he belongs outside. No, look at this, he's not domesticated. Whatever, we, 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 have, we have, humans have this distinct quality of knowing our own mortality and even knowing the mortality of other beings, of the creatures. Philosophers tell us that humans deep down really fear death in all of its forms. And what we're looking for in religion, in love, in success, in travel, and in spirituality, in art, is really about a quest for salvation. Philosophers call this a quest for salvation, that we would be saved from meaninglessness. Only humans are aware that our days are numbered, that the inevitable is not an illusion, and that we must consider what to do with this brief existence on earth. And that's what's unique about us, that we don't want our lives to be wasted, which begs the question, and it's a good question to start off the year with. Do you have an objective, a telos, an end point, a goal, an aim for your life? Now, I'm not talking about the goal you have at your current job or the goal you have set up for yourself in the current project you're working on. I'm not talking about your goal for 2023 or even your goal for the next five years. I am talking about your grand goal of your life. What is the grand goal of why you are alive and living? Many of us will have trouble naming this goal. It's because we've never paused to consider the grand goal in living. It's understandable why we haven't. Our culture doesn't encourage people to think about such things. It's actually, our, 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 our culture provides for us an endless stream of distractions, so we never have to. We make our goal the next gadget or the next apartment, or the next achievement, or the next relationship, or the weekend getaway. And we do that long enough, and over so many years, that there's a strong possibility of turning 45, or 55, or 65, without ever considering our grand goal for living, without a coherent philosophy of life. I use that, those words very specifically. One philosopher writes this. Why is it important to have a philosophy of life. Now, by philosophy, what this writer means and what I mean by it is philosophy here is a coherent way of living, a way of life that brings your life meaning from beginning to end. Why is it important to have a philosophy of life? Because without one, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, Despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Okay. Do you feel it? Do you feel the weight of that quote like down in the pit of your stomach? Like, like what am I doing with my life? That is called existential angst that you're feeling. Let me come at it another way. There's a rather popular British phrase that I enjoy that goes like this. Don't lose the plot or you've lost the plot. Now I like this phrase because even if you haven't heard it you kind of know what it means. It means that you've lost your way, that you're losing the center, that the point of what you're doing is lost, and in some ways, you're losing your very mind. It's when you can't see the point anymore. For whatever reason, you can't see the point of life anymore. This might happen when you lose a job, or when you lose a loved one, or you lose a relationship, or hit midlife crisis, or just the random existential crisis that we go through in life. Novelist, Ewan Morrison wrote an article in Psychology Today about when he creates characters in his novels, when he's writing a character who, lo- who, lo- who starts losing the plot. Like he's writing a character and he's writing them and they're losing the plot of the story and he's writing them. And he's like, what's what going on with this character? He's like, he finds that the following things happen to a character that he's writing losing the plot. He goes, A character in my story, when I'm writing them, starts losing the plot when three things, when they go around in circles. Repeating their actions, getting nowhere. They've lost the plot of the book I'm writing, the character, when they start going around in circles, repeating their actions, getting nowhere. Second, they end up inactive and pushed around by goal driven characters who use them for their own ends. Or three, they become secondary and then uh, ter- tertiary characters who eventually drop out of the story completely. They become people who are like, they're, they're, they're in the story and then they're out, right outside the story and then they're third in the story and then they fall out completely. And I like this because this is how it feels when we lose the plot in our own lives. We forget what the point is that we're doing all this for. We run around in circles. We have like the same kind of relationships, the same kind of job, the same kind of problems year after year without getting anywhere. We end up getting pushed around, tossed to and fro by people with their own agendas for our lives, Or we just drop out of the story completely. Our own stories, God's story, and this might feel, the novel, actually this writer says that this is the feeling of depression. This is what he names in psychology today. Okay, so do you feel it now? That weight of missing the point, of losing the plot, the feeling of misliving, that is existential angst. Let me come at it one other way. I don't know if this person is still canceled or this person ever was canceled. Trevor Noah tr- tried to help redeem him before he left The Daily Show a few weeks ago. But here it goes. Anyways, whatever, whatever that is, here it is. Will Smith wrote a biography. And I recommend it on audiobook because it's incredible, an audiobook. And he says that whenever he starts to study a character, to portray them in a movie, the three-time Oscar nominee and one-time winner asks one question of the character he's about to portray. What do they want? Desire, he says, drives a character. What somebody desires is a portal into the essential truth of their personality. If you want to understand why someone did something, you need only answer this one question. What did they want? He says, an actor's overarching, overarching focus is to unearth the system of wants that intertwine and sometimes collide within the mind of a character to create their psychological driving force. By the way, side note, a very popular question of Jesus over and over again was, what do you want? Or what do you want me to do for you? Stephen Covey in his, in the seven habits of highly effective people said this, there are only two human problems One, knowing what you want, but not knowing how to get it. And two, not knowing what you want. What Stephen Covey and Will Smith are arguing is that knowing what you want, knowing what you want gives your life direction. Now, this is the same way of saying what St. Augustine said in the fourth century, that human beings are longing creatures driven forward by our desires and our loves. So Smith goes on to say, to put a very fine point on it, he says that every word, every action, every association you have can be accurately chosen and harnessed to precipitate your desired outcome. He says, clarity of mission is a powerful cornerstone of your success. Clarity of mission, knowing what you want out of life or in life. So here's my question. Do you know what you want? Do you know what you want? And a follow-up question would be, and is what you want worthy of your whole life? Is what you want worthy of your whole life to where when you're on your deathbed, you look back and you're like, this was a life well lived. And lastly, are you sure about that? Okay, so I'll ask you one more time. Do you feel it? Do you feel the weight of your life and your existence in this world and how imperative it is, how important your existence is? That is existential angst. So let me summarize the bad news as explicitly as I can. There is a great danger of misliving. Your phone and the algorithms that keep you on it know this. And these algorithms hope you never find out that you are misliving so that you can keep swiping and scrolling and buying and clicking. And obviously you know this because you create this crap. (laughs) There's that famous quote from either the founder or an executive at Netflix, I forget, where they said Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. That, that's what I'm talking about, that. There are whole industries that hope that you have lost the plot. And they exist because people have lost the plot in their lives. There's that scene from the movie Soul. Have you ever seen the Disney movie Soul? It's so good. Where they're in the zone, they're talking about flow state, which is a really great concept, flow state, if you ever studies flow state. Um, and they're like flow state, or being in the zone, and they show different characters in the zone. These person's in the zone, that person's in the zone. But they show these like blob creatures that are all hunched over, and they're like wah, 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 wah. I'm like, what's, what's that? Why are they in the zone state? Oh, they're, they're in a different kind of zone. We call them lost souls. These are people who went after the thing they love but got so overwhelmed and, and made the thing they love ultimate that they've become a slave to it. I'm like, whoa, uh, that's, that's everything right there. That, can we stop there? That's the movie. Lost souls is what they call them. And then this shows like there's like another stockbroker like, oh, and he's just typing away. And then that one guy throws something at him and he wakes up, he's like, I'm alive! It's such a good scene. This is what happens. There's whole industries that hope that you just stay like a lost soul. There are companies that hope you never really know what you want in this life so they can advertise to you and sell you what they want you to want or try to hire you by convincing you to help them get what they want. Okay. So at this point in the sermon, I want to be like really completely transparent and honest about something. We have a vision for your life too. We do. I think everyone does. We have a, I, I, as your pastor, have a vision for your life. Now, if you've listened this far, please allow me to share the vision that we have with you. You can reject it. You can just walk away and like, no, no, I, I heard it and I reject it. You can hear it and then consider it and go, oh, I'll consider I'll come back next week and and I'll think about it, or you can openly accept it, whatever you do, please hear me out first. The vision we have for your life comes from the vision Jesus has for your life. I believe that Jesus came as a teacher and a rabbi, which are very common ways of seeing Jesus, teacher and rabbi. But I also think a good way of looking at Jesus is that Jesus came as a philosopher. Now, Jesus doesn't get enough credit as a philosopher Philosophy, before and in the time of Jesus, was the necessary bedrock for individuals and societies, writes biblical scholar Jonathan Pennington in his recent book, On Jesus as a Philosopher, a book I've been waiting years for someone to write at a scholarly level. Philosophy in the ancient world was the lodestar, the guide by which humans could experience true happiness and a vision for life itself. Today, philosophy in college and universities is more analogous to trying to deconstruct everything you've ever believed and thought was true for fun. That's basically, it's like philosophy today. But ancient philosophy, philosophy in the ancient world was there to provide a way of being in the world that offered true life and flourishing. This is what philosophers called the good life. Pennington says this, the good life refers to the habits of practiced wisdom that produce in the human soul deep and lasting flourishing. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was a philosopher, the great philosopher. He came to show the way to live life and live it to the full. He came to show the way that a life can be saved and consequently a soul As well, Now, when I say saved, I'm not primarily talking about going to heaven when you die. This is what we all think about when we read all the salvific passages that Jesus talks about. That is a oversimplification of what Jesus came to do. Going to heaven when you die is not the thrust of the scriptures, nor the teachings and the way of Jesus. The greatest human question that has been asked throughout the ages has been a philosophical question, and it's this. How do we live as whole, meaningful, how do we live a whole, meaningful, and flourishing life? This has been the question. This has been the question. If you've ever read the book Sapiens by Harari, he talks about the shift in consciousness from, from homo whatever to homo sapiens. Sapien means the word wise, wisdom, was that we had this imagination to imagine and want the good life what's good and this is what set us apart so he goes on this whole trail of are we happy and then he argues are we really happy are we any more happy than they were then we're probably not as happy as they were then and then he goes this whole if you've ever read, this but he goes this whole thing but this is this is it this has been the question no matter who you read secular um, if you read uh, religious scholars this is the question how do you live a whole meaningful and flourishing life some people will call this being happy some people will call this being blessed Some people call this being fulfilled. I'm not gonna argue over language. I think it's all what we all want. We often think, and here's the thing, we often think the way of Jesus, or Christianity, answers the next life questions, not the this life questions. How to live a flourishing life here and now, is like Christianity doesn't really do it. It's a religion. It secures me like, if I'm gonna die, am I gonna be cool? Yeah, you'll be cool, 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 that's what I wanted. That's what we think. The following way of Jesus is. We sometimes think we're supposed to be, as Christians, miserable as we wait, escape from this world through the rapture or through death. Like Christians just like, hang on, stay away from anything good as long as you can. The rapture's coming or you're going to die. And then life will get good over there. But that, that, is, that is not the teachings of Jesus. If you're new to Jesus, you might be surprised to know that Jesus was a happy person, He was fulfilled. He lived a flourishing life. He was actually accused of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He wasn't just in the mountain the whole time praying, and people went to him, and he was like this wise, detached, stoic person. He was a full on person that was invited people, like, invited himself over to people's house. Like, I want to be at your house tonight for dinner, and they would call him a drunkard. They would call him a friend of sinners. Jesus lived this full, flourishing life, an integrated life with God, an integrated life with people, an integrated life. He lived a happy, flourishing life. He lived a life that if we saw it, we would want it. If we we saw him live, we would go, this is someone who is flourishing, no matter what, 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 what lot or what happens in his life? He's flourishing because he suffered greatly. Physical pain and emotional disappointment. He died being tortured at the hands of his enemies. And while it was happening, in real time, he was forgiving those who were doing it to him. And why did he do it? Why did Jesus die on a cross? We're told in the book of Hebrews that it was the joy of, that was set before him that Jesus went to the cross. You know what drove Jesus to the cross? Joy. Jesus was a joyful person. And you might not understand this, and we'll get to this in a second, but what drove him to the cross was joy. Jesus not only lived a fulfilled life, but he knew that through his life and his death, he would bring so many others into the same life that he's living, his life. This gave his life meaning. This gave his death meaning and consequently it brought him joy. The ancient theologian Irenaeus says this: Our Lord Jesus Christ, through his transcendent love, became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Jesus came to be through transcendent love what we are so that he can bring us into the life his life of God, his life with God, to be brought into the divine. And not only to be brought into the divine, but to live a life of flourishing. When Jesus taught, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with ways to be happy. We translate it blessed. The early church translated it happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He would, go, he would just do these, happy are, happy are, this is, these are ways to be happy. Now, the logic is, is kind of upside down we'll get to that in a second but Jesus came to teach us a way to live in this life Jesus wants to bring us into his life and vision of flourishing of wholeness and a life of meaning now if right now and rightly so this probably should happen to some of us because it's, it's it's really important right now your prosperity gospel alerts might be up You're like oh my gosh this prosperity gospel is really going, like is this I thought, is this what, like, is David about to tell me I'm going to get a mansion? Is David about to tell me I'm going to get that car I want? Is this what David's about to tell me right now? And what's happened is that because the prosperity gospel has all but, like, hijacked what it means to live a good life, it's completely neutered any sort of talk that we can talk about in the church of, like, Jesus lived a fulfilled life. Not just a life of suffering and asceticism and, like, itchy clothes and that sort of thing. (laughs) But a full life. And taught other people to live a full life, too. We just have made that to mean, well, that means that I get everything that I want. And that's not the way of Jesus. So let me read to you a very famous saying of Jesus and try to point out a few things. I'm going to actually read you a text of Scripture that is at the very heart of why people go, if I become a Christian, that seems like it's like, um... I don't know how do I put this, not fun, not good at all, the worst thing ever, that sort of thing. Mark 8, here it is. And keep this up, please, for, for, for a while. Mark 8, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I want you to remember something. Keep this up. I want you to remember something. Jesus is not only Savior and Lord. He is Savior and Lord. I want you to look at this teaching as the teaching of a philosopher, someone who's teaching you how to live life on this earth, in a way that brings you flourishing. We sometimes read this we're like, this is about heaven, right? No, not really. No, that's not about heaven. It's about how you live your life here and now. Imagine this is someone who's teaching you and giving you a vision for the way to live life to the full right now. So a few things I want to point out. Number one, Jesus is saying that it's very possible to mislive. Jesus is saying right here in this text, it's very possible to mislive. More than that, it's rather easy to mislive. Humans have this propensity to go after the whole world. And like little babies, we want to put the whole world in our mouths. My son turns one today. Now he's one today. And so we did it. Ash mainly did it, but we kept him alive for a year, which is like the whole goal of the first year. right? Like, because why? They put everything in their mouths. Anything he sees, he's like, oh, that thing, uh, that thing. I want to put that in my mouth. I want to put that in my mouth. This is what babies do. This is how they learn. Now we don't, we don't move beyond that as humanity, by the way, you just stop doing it physically and you do it to your soul. I want that thing. Oh, and I want, I want to put everything in every experience, everything I can live, everything I, I want it all, all, all. We want, we're insatiable. We want to experience and taste it all. We want to hoard and keep it. We want to use it and we want to try it. And because we are creatures with this kind of insatiable longing, it's very easy for us to go after the whole world and in the end realize that we mislived. So the first thing Jesus is saying is it's very possible to mislive. The second thing he's saying is that as you do mislive or as you lose the plot in life, you lose more than that. There's also a loss of your soul Now, you might ask the question, does this mean eternal soul or like my soul right now? And the answer is yes. You are a soul, which is the integrated whole of you, mind, body, spirit. Jesus is saying that you might gain the world and get everything you want in life and lose your soul in the process. What does that mean? It means people who look like they have it all can be dead inside. Basically, any memoir ever written by a famous person, right? I mean, it's Will Smith, it's, it's Matthew Perry, it's like whatever memoir that comes out. What is the memoir? I got it all, and I was dead inside. You don't have a memoir unless you can tell that story. This is every memoir. I, had, I did this, I, had, I went for it, and then I was dead inside, or I was addicted, or I was like, I was, I, I was missing something. This is what Jesus is talking about. It means success, money, sex, houses, travel, experiences, all the stuff we think makes up a good life can't satisfy the soul. And you might not realize it until it's too late. The third thing, Jesus actually wants your life to be saved. He wants your life to be saved. And herein lies the paradox. On the surface, you think Jesus is asking you to die Right? When you read this, you're like, Jesus asked me to die. But in reality, if you look closer, Jesus is offering you a way to live. For whoever wants to save their life. Who wants to save and the saved here? We don't, okay, again, you might like eternal salvation. Think of this as a salvation in a philosophy term. Do you want not to waste your life and your soul now and eternity? Do you want life now, now, now? Do you want your life to mean something now? Whoever wants to save their life, who doesn't doesn't want to save their life? Again, don't primarily think of heaven here. Think life, this life. Jesus is offering, inviting us into a life that is truly life. He has come as the one who can show us the way to really live, how to really die, and how to do both with joy. The problem is, we're afraid to let go. We think that true life is just around the corner. Life, True life will just be right around the corner of like the next thing, right around the corner from my next pay bump, that's when life will start. Or the next promotion, or the next relationship, or the next apartment, or the next city I live in, or the next intellectual achievement. Life is just around that corner. But we also know that this isn't working because our therapy bill keeps racking up at the same time. And the list of wellness podcasts keep growing. Now, nothing against those. I love a good therapist. I've been in therapy for a very long time. And I love a good wellness podcast. My gosh, send them to me all the time. But I guess the point I'm making is this, and this is important. We don't think Jesus offers us that stuff. We think Jesus only offers life after death. Does Jesus actually teach me how to live well in this world, in this life? Does Jesus actually show me a way to, for an integration of my whole life? Does he actually teach us that? No, no, he doesn't teach us that. He teaches us how to die, and then I go to all these other podcasts and therapists for the other stuff. But that's wrong. As the Polish theologian Darius, Darius Karlovic, um says, quote, the task of all philosophy, including Christian philosophy, is the therapy of souls who have been led astray by the demands of the passions and the false pictures of happiness. This is what Jesus has come to give, a vision of life that is truly life. Now, how does Jesus do it? Well, he invites us, according to the text in Mark 8, he invites us to deny, to die, and become his disciple. He invites us to deny ourselves, to die, take up a cross, and then become his disciple. This is very strange. This is very, very strange. Now, a misunderstanding of this is why we think the way of Jesus is just asceticism, just the denial of all the good things in life. So we read that, and we're like, deny, and die, and disciple, that doesn't seem like the good life. And I think that's wrong. I think that's what the devils want you to believe. Philosopher C.S. Lewis, after he finally became a Christian, um, I'm reading um, uh, the, fel- the book, The Fellowship like the History of the Inklings, which is like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and all those Oxford people that got together and like, wanted to renew the West with the imagine- Christian imagination. And it's a really long book. It's very, very good. But what's striking to me is how, how C.S. Lewis doesn't like Christianity. He's an atheist. He doesn't like Christianity. He's a philosopher. And every time he meets a philosopher who is smart, and witty, and is, is, is like fun to be around, and he finds out they're a Christian, he gets angry. <laughs> and then eventually, eventually, he becomes a Christian. And when he does, he writes a book. He writes a book that is um, an apologetic of Christianity, and it's, hilar- it's satirical, it's hilarious. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And the Screwtape letters, the premise of this, like all like comedy, what it should do, is it should make you laugh and go, ha 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 ha, oh, okay. <laughs> that's how this book is written, okay? So it's about, it's from, um, Screwtape is the senior demon. It's written from demon's perspective. Trying to teach a younger disciple demon, whose name is Wormwood, how to tempt humanity away from the life of Jesus. How to keep them in bondage. So that's how it's written, right? And one of the things that uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood is this. Again, this is from, the, from the, the devil's perspective. So when the enemy, the enemy to a devil is God, right? So when, when God, when the enemy instructs humans to lose themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality. What Screwtape is trying to teach Wormwood is this. Okay, so... There, I want you to keep humanity in this thing where when Jesus calls them to deny themselves, they get so hung up on that. They think they're gonna lose all of themselves and everything they are and it'll keep them from following Jesus. That's exactly what we, we wanna keep promoting. We don't want them to know what, what God really does is when they deny themselves, they're denying this like, this like clamor of self-will and then God gives them back who they really are in abundance. We don't want them to know that. What Jesus is after here What he's calling us to is the death of our self-will. That part of us that puts us in the center of all judgment, where nothing is right or good until we say it's right or good. It's the first step of AA. It's the admission of powerlessness over the insatiability of our own souls. And to do this, what Jesus does in order to get us to realize this, is he appeals to moral logic. A moral logic that is woven into every fabric of reality. So again, think of Jesus as a teacher philosopher who teaches us the way reality really works. A logic that we all know is true. And he appeals to this kind of logic when he tells us to follow him. He says this, here's the logic. And we all know this. If you want to receive in this life, like really receive, you have to give. Don't we all know this? You don't receive in this life by getting and getting and getting and keeping and hoarding and hoarding. What kind of people do those people turn into? Destroyed souls. Who are the people that really receive out of this life the people who give? We know this logic is true. It's reverse logic. If you wanna gain inner strength, you have to surrender to something outside of yourself. If you want inner fortitude, you have to be willing to surrender something to something outside of yourself whether that's love or trust or obedience or loyalty, if you want to gain inner strength, you know you have to give yourself to something outside of yourself. You have to conquer your desires to get what you really want or crave. That that doesn't make sense. I have to conquer my desires to get what I really want? We all know this is true. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. Everyone knows this. And more often than not, success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. To get sober, you have to hit rock bottom and give up. All this is true and you know it. And what Jesus is saying is he's appealing to this logic. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. You have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, die to your self will, and follow me. And once you do and become my disciple, not only will you get your life back and your soul back, you will be more yourself than you ever were before. C.S. Lewis, again, he becomes a Christian. And he realizes this, he knows this. So he writes this another masterful book called Mere Christianity. And I read this quote to you about every year, every other year, because it saved me dozens and dozens of times. It probably saves me again every year. So I'll read it to you at length this year because it's, it needs that. So it's kind of a long quote, but it's so good. Listen, so he's he's talking about this death. This is actually how he ends the book, Mere Christianity. If you want to give up yourself, he says, there must be a real giving up of self. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature, And art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom give up yourself and you will find your real self, lose your life and you will save it, submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. And you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And then it says, the end, at the end of the book. That was it, the end. It's important to point out that what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't want you to lose your life for the sake of losing it. He doesn't even want you to lose your life for the sake of finding it in that matter. He wants you to lose your life for the sake of being his disciple, which led Lewis to right at the very end, everything else thrown in. When you become Jesus' disciple, not only you think you're giving up all this stuff, you get Christ and then everything else thrown in. This is the vision we have for your life. This is it, to be a disciple of Jesus. That is to follow him, to become like him, good at what he's good at, and to live as fulfilled, joyful, flourishing as possible. So I'll end where where I started. The first quote I shared talked about having a philosophy of life so that you don't waste your life or you don't mislive. It's important to have a coherent philosophy of life. Okay, hang on to that. i want to round out that thought with this final quote. The flourishing and happy life does not happen accidentally. It must be sought after. And the means of pursuit is the life of discipleship to a philosophy, a way of seeing and being in the world that is pursued and practiced. First, become aware of yourself, then turn away from foolish and non-giving life habits and thoughts In biblical language, repent. And then, over time, learn new ways of living through failures and successes in practice. Our vision for your life is a whole life discipleship around the way of Jesus, a philosophy, so to speak. We have, the vision that we have for your life is that you actually could live a flourishing, we can live flourishing lives. We can live lives as Christians that are flourishing, that are so deeply rooted in God that are so deeply rooted in community and so deeply rooted with like even knowing ourselves that makes life abundant, fulfilled, flourishing, the good life possible. And over the next four weeks, we'll be unpacking exactly what that is. So I'll really end here. You might ask, why Jesus? Why not other like philosophers or therapists? There's so many other good ones, right? There's like... I don't know if you follow Alain de Bouton and his School of Life. There's that, and it's excellent. There's Jordan Peterson. There's, there's the new um, Phil Stutz on Netflix, if you've seen that and listened to There's like all these people, like why don't we just follow these people's philosophy or better yet, why don't we take the good of like, I like what Peterson says here. I like what de Bouton says here. I like what Stutz says here. I like what Oprah says here. I like what Jesus says here. I like what Buddhism says here. Why don't we just take and choose, pick and choose what we want and make our own thing? Here's the thing all other religions philosophies and even therapists and gurus have some truth i love reading them i love um, i've love watching the stutz documentary and listen to the podcast i've love following elaine de Bouton. i love reading parts of what jordan peterson has to say jordan peterson has to say i love things oprah has to say and all these other guru type people but they have part of the truth it's fractional It's part of it. They have this part. Like that's good, that's a good part. And this person has a part. But Jesus, John one opens like this. Jesus is the logos, the word logos, the Greek word logos, which is a philosophical word, meaning the organizing principle of the cosmos. He is the organizing principle of of creation, of the world. He is that thing, and they didn't have a word for it. Like what's the thing that holds everything together? The word, the logos, that's what they would call it. And John says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Logos, Jesus who holds everything, he holds the entire universe together, creation together, your life together. So therefore, his way alone is complete. He has the whole picture, the whole thing. It's like when you grab your remote and you turn on the TV and you're like, what was that show on again? Was that Disney Plus? No, it was Apple TV. No, it wasn't. It was no, no. It was on Amazon Prime. No, 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 it wasn't Amazon Prime. It was Hulu. Hulu, that was what it was. And you're like, I wish someone would just like bundle these together. <laughs> Wouldn't that make more sense? Just bundle them under one thing. We are the unbundling generation. We've unbundled religion and unbundled psychology. We've unbundled cable. We've unbundled it all, and it's not helping that much. Jesus is the Logos. Everything is bundled in him, everything. You want a life of flourishing, you want salvation, you want meaning, you want purpose, you want mission. All of it is found in Jesus. He's the Logos that holds everything together. And so why Jesus' philosophy? Because he's the one that holds it all together. He's the only one that can really offer us salvation, and he's the only one that can give our lives meaning and flourishing. Would you stand as we pray? Lord, I thank you for the the patience of this congregation and so many things uh, we said and and I I pray now that that there would just be this thing that happens by the power of your spirit, God, that goes beyond my words, beyond even the things that we feel, that goes right to like the the, the core of who we are, the soul of who we are and will be the spirit saying, this is true, this is real, this is what you long for, and this is what you want. And I pray that Jesus, when Jesus told a parable of a person who saw treasure in a field, he went and sold everything to buy that field with that treasure because that treasure's worth so much. We, Lord, would feel the same way that this is it. I'll give anything to grab onto this. You are our treasure, Lord. And we adore you. And lead us now in response to you. In Jesus' name.